the story of David. If, you're in your, if you got your Bibles tonight, we're going to be in 1 Samuel, um, chapters, uh, specifically in chapter 16. Over the, the course of the next couple months, maybe three months, um, David, King David in the Bible is mentioned in a few different places. He's mentioned in, um, he's mentioned in Kings, Chronicles, he's mentioned in, uh, in, in the book of Ruth, the, his lineage. But in this series, we are specifically going to be talking about 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. If you, Samuel, if you want to go ahead and get reading about the story, I encourage you to read it in your own time. But um, we spent eight weeks on this series of the Worshiping Church detailing about what it means to be a people who worship, who steward our temple in such a way that God would get the glory. God tells us in the scripture that our body is that we are now a temple of the Holy Spirit so that we are to govern our, our, our lives and ourselves in a certain way so that we can see his presence be filled up in our lives and overpour and pour out into everything else. So as I was praying about that, there was, there was so much in that series that's going to relate to the story of David that's just going to give us a deeper revelation of the incredible story of this servant of God. So tonight, if you're taking notes, week one is called this, Becoming Seekers. Becoming Seekers. Y'all okay? Okay. Y'all seem a little dead tonight. Y'all right? <laughs> How many of you love God? That's what I'm talking about. How many of you want to see God do incredible things? I believe the key to that is becoming a seeker, becoming a seeker. There are so many of us in our lives where whether you're here in this family at Relentless or you've grown up in other churches, there are so many people that claim themselves as believers of Jesus Christ. The more and more I study scripture and just giving you a little insight, 2018 was probably one of the toughest years of my life, but I am at a place right now, I've never been deeper in a relationship with Jesus as I have been this year, and the stuff that he's showing me is just incredible. The more and more I study and the more and more I become his child and his servant, um, the more I realize it is not enough just to say, I believe. Jesus even addressed it when he said, many will call on my name, many will do miracles in my name, but when they come to me, I will say to them, depart from me because I never knew you. Because it's not enough just to call on his name. It's not enough. I, I hear it all the time. Hey, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I go to church. And the fact of the matter is, going to church and getting your Sabbath in has nothing to do with becoming a seeker. It plays a part for sure, but it is not the definition of what a seeker is. We, we, have, we have made our Christian lives become this whole thing where it's just I believe in Jesus and I believe through this series we're going to be challenged to become people who don't just believe in him but become a people that actually seek him. We come to a place in scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 13 where Saul and his son Jonathan had just finished fighting a battle. Saul was about 30 years old when he was appointed king of Israel. In fact, when Saul was appointed, now this is not the Saul of the New Testament, this is a different Saul, this is King Saul. He was appointed as the first king of Israel, and his reign lasted about 42 years. And the way he became king is that God spoke through a prophet. If anyone knows the name of the prophet, I'll give you five dollars. Dang, Ryan's got five dollars. You know, I'm gonna buy your dinner tonight, man. Yeah. See, he just knew that because we're in the book of First Samuel. But <laughs> David, uh, Saul was anointed by a prophet named Samuel, that, and, and the, a man that spoke the commands of God to Saul. And Israel was at war with the Philistines. Well, in 1 Samuel 13, Saul gathers all of his troops, and he says, 3,000 of y'all stay, and the rest of you, you can go home. Of those 3,000, Saul kept 2,000, and he gave 1,000 troops to his son, Jonathan. Well, Saul went one way. Saul went to Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and then Jonathan took his 1,000 troops, and they went um, to, uh, to, to the land of Benjamin. Well, on the way to that land, uh, 
Jonathan and his thousand troops, they come up to this garrison, this troop of Philistines, and they slaughter them. They win the battle. But what happened is when Jonathan won and the thousand troops won that battle, that battle, the news spread quickly and the Philistines were mad and the Philistines started saying, all right, y'all, strap up. We about to go. We're we going to get every single troop we got and we're going we gonna to retaliate. So, so, so all, all, all of these, the, the, these armies are starting to assemble. And we're going to read that the Philistine army that was assembling was huge. It says there were so many troops, it was like the number of troops was like into the grains of sand on a beach. We're talking a large army. So Saul, he starts to see this army assemble, and he blows a ram's horn, and all those troops he sent home, he's like, Burr. all right, you guys got, y'all got to get back. We're being surrounded. Y'all like my little, uh, the, my ram's horn sound? Burr. He said, we, y'all got to get back because the armies are coming, and we got to get ready because this going down. So the whole army gathers together and look what happens in 1 Samuel 13 verse 5. Can y'all tell I hadn't preached in two weeks? (laughs) The Philistines mustered a mighty army of 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and as many warriors as the grains of sand on the seashore. They camped at McMash east of Beth Avon. The men of Israel saw what a tight spot they were in, and because they were hard-pressed by the enemy, they tried to hide in caves, thickets, rocks, holes, and cisterns. Some of them crossed the Jordan River and escaped into the land of Gad and Gilead. Meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal. His men were trembling with fear. Now, many of us know Saul as a bad man, but at this point, Saul was the man that God appointed as king, And Saul was going to this place under the command that God had given through the prophet Samuel. He said, I'm going to have y'all go into this place, and this is where Saul's at. And what happens, Saul is in the path and footsteps and plan of God, and and all of a sudden, he starts to see the enemy. And when the enemy started to come, and when they started to get surrounded, it says in the scripture... They were were pressed on every side. And their response, let's hide. We're going to hide in caves and the thickets and the rocks, and some of them even ran away. And what happens in life sometimes, even though we claim we're believers of Jesus, we claim we're believers that we are temples that house the Holy Spirit, when things get hard, a lot of times what we do is we sink in and we hide. We hide into depression. We hide into anxiety. We hide from serving. We try to get as far away from our purpose as possible because it just gets hard. Cards get dealt the wrong way. Life happens and you feel like you are pressed on every side that the weight of the world is on you and we see the enemy working. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? You go through these times, even you're going to church, you're, you're, you're giving your tithe, you're giving your worship, you're doing all this stuff, and it's like, God, I've shown up for you, but I feel like everything is coming against me. But 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 9 says this, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're hunted down, but we're never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Every time when you feel those things, the way you fight is not run and wait for the enemy to pass you by. Because the scripture doesn't say if you get pressed. The scripture doesn't say if you get perplexed. The scripture doesn't say if you get hunted down. It says it is a state of being. You live in a fallen world, and you're never going to escape feeling pressed, feeling perplexed, feeling driven to despair, and you're never going to escape feeling like you're being hunted down by the very enemy. Doesn't it seem like life's like that? Well, the church has preached this false message of follow Jesus, and you'll get out of problems. But this scripture says you're never going to escape that. So the question we have is, well, how the heck do I fight it? Because Saul, that's what Saul's going through. You ever ever just have one of those weeks where it seems like every single thing is going wrong? And you're like, God, you there? 
God, I've done, where are you at? The way we fight is not to start saying, God, where are you at? The way we fight is not, God, get this away from me because this is just so hard. Oh, my gosh, I'm just such having a period. That's not the way we fight. God gives us the sword, the word of God. And what does the word of God say? Be, I say it every week. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does the scripture say? You're, cre- you're pressed, but you're not crushed. Life is going to be in such a way where you feel like everything is pressing on you. But what is inside that you cannot see is so much stronger than what you can. That is why God calls us to walk by faith and not by sight. Because when God is inside of you, the foundation of you is so much stronger than what's pressing in. So he says the truth of the matter is you're going to be pressed. But the God in you will never allow you to be crushed. The truth of the matter is you're going to be perplexed. But you don't have to go into despair. The truth of the matter is you're going to feel like you're hunted down. But the God in you will never let you be destroyed. You see, the way we fight is not trying to escape the enemy. The way we fight is not trying to say, God, where you at? The way we fight is start to proclaim truth. Yes, I'm down. It's hard. I've had a bad week. I feel like everything's against me. But I'm strong. I'm not, I am not crushed. I am not despairing. I am not hunted down without a protector. My God is with me. You can do whatever you want, enemy. But what you're doing will never define who I am. But Saul started to let it define him. Because God gave Saul some pretty specific instructions. God spoke through Samuel and said, I want you to wait for me, wait for the prophet Samuel at Gilgal. Pretty simple instruction. He's led him through all these battles, all these fights, through the the, the path of the enemy. They defeat a thousand or a, a small troop. And all of a sudden, this vast army comes. And God gives him one instruction. Just wait for Samuel Gilgal. So let's see what Saul does in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 8. Saul waited there seven days for Samuel. That's a pretty long time. Waited a week. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being at a place in life where you're surrounded by the enemy, you feel like you're about to die, you feel like everything's going wrong, and you're just sitting there waiting? That's probably some of the most biggest complaints I hear from people. I'm tired of waiting. When is God going to show up? Well, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. When God says wait, you wait. He was waiting seven days, as Samuel had instructed him earlier, but Samuel didn't come. Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away. They were all running because they were scared. So he demanded Bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. He was supposed to wait because it was not Saul's call to sacrifice the offering needed to fight this army. But what happened is Saul was not looking into heaven. Saul was not looking into promise. Saul was not looking into what God instructed him to do. Saul focused his eyes not on the faith and the assurance of the presence of God, but he focused his eyes on what he could see. And all he could see, his army was decreasing, and the troubles were getting hard, and he didn't know what to do. So instead of waiting, he took it upon himself and moved himself. He said, I am going to sacrifice what needs to be sacrificed. Well, in verse 10, just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. Saul went out to meet and welcome him, but Samuel said, what have you done? Saul replied, I saw my men scattering from me, and you didn't arrive when you said you would. And the Philistines are at Michmash, and they're ready for battle. So I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal. I haven't even asked for the Lord's help, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. Y'all, There are so many times in life that fear grips us to such a degree that we try to move ahead of God's timing and put stuff in our hands outside of God's instructions. Saul knew what he was supposed to do. 
but the circumstances swayed him to trust in what he saw rather than trust in the instruction that God gave him. And I feel like God is telling me to say this to someone tonight. You are at a place where you feel like you are in this hole that continues to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And the only thing you can hear God say is wait. That is not God avoiding delivering you. It's how he wants to deal with the process. Saul was called to wait. And there was no promise. Because he waited and he waited and nothing came. Nothing showed up. Sometimes the thing that God calls you to do is not the thing you want to hear. And when you're pressed and you're, and you're feeling like I'm getting in a hole, my family's going down, my finances are going down, this is going down, and you're like, God, I'm crying out to you. What do I do? What, what do I do? You want the, the do. You want the what to do. You want the thing. You want I got to do this and this will happen. I got to do this and I'll get the healing. I got to do this. Sometimes God just says, wait for me. Wait for what I want to, wait for me to do, wait for the person I'm sending. Wait for the way I want to do it because I'm no longer delivering you with your own hand. I'm bringing someone else into the picture and you've got to wait for them to get there. That's good. Wait. In Lamentations 3, 25 to 26 it says, The Lord is good to those who depend on him, to those who search for him. It is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. I believe that God calls us to be a fruitful people. I believe that God calls us to be a people that do things. But sometimes what we get caught up in is we want to do the next thing instead of waiting for the next thing in the process of doing the current thing. Because where Saul's at, this, is, this was his current do. His current do, wait for Samuel. But you ever in that process of waiting where you start to get a little giddy and you start to take things in your own hands and then when you start to put things in your own hands, everything just falls apart even worse? That's what's going on with Saul. The more he puts things in his own hands, his army's leaving. They're scared. They're running. All he had to do was wait. God says, I'm good to those who depend on me. When it comes down to it, folks, are you a believer or are you a seeker? Because believers don't trust in the waiting. Believers are, I believe in Jesus and he's going to do everything for me and, I, and, 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 and I'm good to go. And then when something happens, they're like, where's he at? Seekers understand that when God says wait because I'm doing something, there is something for us to do in the waiting and sometimes it's not the do that you want to do. Sometimes it looks a lot different. Sometimes it doesn't look like it's going to work. I didn't plan to talk about this tonight, but look at, look at this move. I don't want relentless to fail. This is my life. Everything I do is relentless. And it looks absolutely stupid to sacrifice a huge facility and spend $20,000 going to a small facility out in Pooler. But I'm no longer in the place in my life where I'm saying, God, show me how that makes sense. It's simply if God says go, I go. If he says do, I do. And what we become is we become a people who are more obsessed with saying, God, show me every single thing instead of trusting in the next step. And the next step for Saul was simply wait. In Psalm 37, 23, it says, The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. If God delights in every detail, that means he doesn't want to skip every detail because he delights in the detail. And what we want to do, we get the dream, we get the want, we want the deliverance, we want the healing, we want our plans to be established, we want breakthrough, we want great things over our family, we want great things over our finances, we want great things over our house. We see the big picture and then when God gives you step one, you're so obsessed with the end that you're not willing to be obedient in the step that doesn't make sense of how to get there. It's, it's like tithing. God says, give me 10, live off 90. But when your finances get hard, you sacrifice your 10 because the step of the 10 doesn't make sense with what you're trying to get. 
You're trying to get a better place financially. And God says, the first step of me getting you there is to give me some. But what we do is we put it in our pocket because we do not seek him. We just believe. If you're truly seeking him, you cannot not give God the ten. Your time, your talents, and your treasure. God, I want to do things for you, but you can't serve and hold a door? And I'm not, this is not a sermon trying to get people to, we got a lot of people serving. Most of the people in this room are serving. We got a lot of people out tonight. That's okay, God will deliver them. But God says, I've got some steps for you to take. And they're not always going to make sense. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. If the scripture tells us that God has different ways and God has different thoughts, why are you trying to wrap your mind around the step when he says you'll never understand it? Walk by faith, not by sight. Sight is also your understanding. There are so many times we try to get an understanding of what to do before we do it. Sometimes you never move forward because you're waiting on the understanding that's never meant to come. I'll go when I make sense of this. And God says, well, my step is going to look like something that you can't imagine, and it's going to look like something that doesn't make sense. Saul, you've got thousands upon thousands upon thousands surrounding you, and Saul's expecting, well, Samuel's not here. Offer the, the, the burnt offering, and we're going to move forward. God's plan didn't change. Wait. In 1 Samuel 13, this is what Samuel says. In verse 13, how foolish, Samuel explained. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. He lost the establishment of his reign because he simply wouldn't wait. And as I was preparing this message, like the one thing God kept saying is, I wonder how many people you're going to speak to the things I have planned for them are being forsaken and they're never going to see them because they're simply not doing this one thing. And I'm going to give you some hope at the end of this. It doesn't end for you. God loves you too much to give up on you because you made one mistake. But let's be real. The plans that God has given you he wants you to be fruitful and walk in them now. But sometimes now looks like waiting. Sometimes now looks like praying. You know, we keep saying, you know, we, we play this video every week. You know, we're on the edge of breakthrough. We can see a spirit of revival falling all across our city. But when we try to come together and pray about it, three people show up. Because we believe but are we truly seeking? Because seekers go above the come to the service. Seekers go above the let me choose a church based on location. Seekers go above the let me choose a church that has a good kids ministry. Seekers go above the let me choose a church that has a good worship team. Seekers go to a place where where can I be a part of a community that simply love God together. It's amazing how every revival is compared to the revival in Acts. And in the revival in Acts, when the 3,000 were added daily and the fire of God fell in the room and they were speaking 12 and 15 different languages all at one time that they had no prior knowledge of, it was in the most humble, dirtiest, non-air-conditioned place ever, and they saw God. And we've got to think, I've got to have a big stage lighting in a big building to see the presence we got to wake up. I'm not saying God doesn't want churches to have big buildings. But you don't deserve that if you cannot seek in the secret. Saul claimed he loved God. But when the enemy came, what he truly had faith in showed out. I am sick and tired of living in a country where so many people call themselves Christians, but nothing looks like God. And I'm going to be so bold to say this. If your life doesn't look godly, you probably really aren't of him. And I, I can't get fired because I started the church and 
Jesus. <laughs> Being a disciple of Jesus is not someone who believes. There's no believer's prayer in the Bible. Being a disciple, being a disciple of Jesus is becoming someone that follows him because he delights in every step that you walk. Every step. Man, I love God. And this next season of Relentless, I'm just asking you to let's fall in love with him together all over again. Like Saul should have been. Verse 14. After he says that the Lord would have established your kingdom, but now your kingdom must end. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Later on in 1 Samuel, God gives Saul another chance. He gives him another instruction. And this is the instruction in 1 Samuel. Is this okay? Okay, 1 Samuel 15 verse 3. Go and completely destroy the Amalekite nation. Completely destroy them. The men, the women, the children, the babies, the cattle, the sheep, the goats, the camels, the donkeys. Kill them all. It's a pretty simple commandment. Just destroy everyone. Look what Saul does. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. Brings a whole new definition to hide your kids, hide your wife. Look at verse, verse 7. Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, east of Egypt. But look at what he does. He captured Agag, the Amalekite king, but completely destroyed everyone else. Now, what did God say? Destroy everything. And he keeps the king. Saul and his men spared his life and kept the best of the sheep, the goats, the cattle, the fat calves, the lambs, everything. In fact, that appealed to them. They destroy only what was worthless or of poor quality. God says, take care of everything. And Saul says, oh, I, I'm, I'm a seeker of you, God. Yes, sir. And then when they get down to it, he says, oh, this stuff is worth too much. To, we, we, can't, we, can't, we can't be wasteful people. So let's keep the fat calves and the, and the good stock. And let's, let's keep the king with us because he's a playing card. For, he can't. God says, take it all away, and he keeps something. If he was truly a seeker, he would not be messing up the plans. And I wonder how many of you still have enemies alive in your life because when God said, take it all out, you kept pieces. God says, here's your chance. I want to establish your plans. Son, daughter of God, I want you to move forward. I want better things for you. I want increase for you. I want to bring you into new places. So get rid of everything that don't look like me. The scripture even tells us we are believers are not to mingle with unbelievers. But there's so many of us, we can't cut our friends because, well, I've known them 15 years. So what you're telling me is the command of God is worth less than a relationship with someone who doesn't believe in the God you believe in. And you wonder why your life is still in shambles. He says, cut it out. Minister to them. Love them. Bless them. But your closest family should not be the ones you're trying to evangelize. Cut it out. But what we do is we pull a saw. Well, they're worth so much. And they're so good. And it's a good relationship. And it's good this and it's good this. We wrap our minds around a thought that is not our thought. A way that is not our way. God says, all in, all me. Do you ever recall a story in the Bible where the disciples said, Jesus, I know we're about to go like heal people, but can you give me a minute? Because my friend that I went to high school live, with lives over here, and I'd really like to have dinner with them before we go heal these people. No, they left everything, and what did they do? They followed. 
Because seekers don't just believe. They will lose anything. They will sacrifice everything. Because they just want to seek him. They just want more. And this is the big mic drop scripture in 1 Samuel 15. After he does this, look in verse 10. It says, then the Lord said to Samuel, I'm sorry that I ever made Saul king. He's not been loyal to me, and he's refused to obey my command. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out to the Lord all night. Why? Samuel was the one that anointed him as king under God's behalf. And because Saul kept doing everything opposite, God said, Samuel, I'm sorry I ever gave him anything. I don't know about you, but I, I don't want to get to a day where God looks at me and says, I'm sorry I ever gave you anything. I hate crying in front of people. I don't ever want to get to a day where I, I, when I present what God's told me to build his relentless church, that God says, Kyle, I'm sorry I ever gave you those people. I am willing to do whatever it takes to go where God wants us to go. But where God wants us to go is not one man alone. It's the family that he has called each other to commune with and have joy with and sweat together and bleed together and cry together and pray together and eat together and love each other. We've been called to do this together. You want to know why we haven't seen unity in the church? Because when we lead the church, our true community has nothing to do with the people sitting in this room. We're never going to do anything if that's going to be the reality of Relentless Church. I don't care how good I preach. I don't care if this band gets so good that, that you know, Sony Records approach Jacob and say, I want to give you an album, which in the name of Jesus is going to happen. But that is what's not going to build a true church. What's going to build it is when we are willing to abandon everything, everything, everything I say I'm not just a believer I'm seeking I'm going after him there are so many times in life where we get dealt bad cards there are so many times in life where we say God why, did, why are you making me go through this why did you let this happen but my Bible says that he is the author and the finisher of my faith. So let me give you a promise. You may be going through the worst time of your life right now. But the promise of God says, if you will start seeking me, even though your life has been total chaos and hurt and pain, that's not the story I started. But if you'll seek me, you can walk out the story that I want you to finish. Because what you have been living has been a result of a wrong story written on behalf of the environment you've been living in. Maybe it's something your parents created. Maybe something it's an addiction that brought to you. I don't know what has brought you into your circumstances. But you do not have to let your circumstances tell you how your life's going to end. You can finish the story exactly how God wanted. But it's not going to be by just believing. It's going to be seeking God said I'm sorry I ever made him king but I've got someone that's a seeker and I'm going to get him <laughs> now at this point there's tension I'm getting there I'm getting there at this point there's tension because Samuel just spoke to Saul that his kingdom's done and this is where we start seeing the evil side of Saul starting to rise up in the story because Saul's like, you ain't going to tell me I'm giving up my kingdom. You ain't going to do nothing like that. So there's tension. So we come, to, we come to this place in 1 Samuel 16, starting in verse 1. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, 
Remember, he's crying day and night because Saul has totally given up what his purpose was going to be. You've mourned long enough for Saul. I've rejected him as king of Israel. Fill your flask with oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there. I've selected one of his sons to be my king. Now remember, there's tension. So Samuel asked, well, how can I do that? Someone shout how. If Saul hears about it, he's going to kill me. Remember, Saul don't want to give up his kingdom. So if Samuel shows up in Bethlehem looking for the new king, there's a possibility that Saul might get his guys and let's, let's kill this dude, even though they've been so close up to this point. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied. Say that you've come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice. I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. Samuel doesn't say, God, I see the enemy and I won't go there. Samuel does not say, this step does not make sense, so I won't go. He says one thing. How? I believe that we have got to become a people that, start saying, that stop saying it can't be done and start, start asking, how can it be done? Because my Bible says in Matthew 19, 26, with God, all things are possible. And if we truly believe that all things are possible with God, when an opportunity presents itself, it's not, this can't be done. I don't see it. This isn't going to work. It's how. How do we go there? How do I go there? How do you want me to finish, God? Because I'm coming up at a crossroads, and it doesn't look good for me. But if you're telling me to go, how? Verse 4, so Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied. I have, come to I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves. Come with me to the sacrifice. And then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. And when they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Remember, he's looking for the next king. So he's looking around with his thoughts, look, looks at Jesse's first son, Eliab, and goes, oh yeah, this, this, this guy's a king. But look at what the Lord says. Don't judge by his appearance or his height. I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We spend too much time looking at what qualifies us with what we see. We say we're people that walk by faith and not by sight, but all of your qualifiers in life are let me look with my own eyes what makes sense. Tyler, you can come up. What qualifies you is not how much you serve. It's, it's, not how great you, it's not how great you do things. It's not how talented you are. It's not all the skill you got. It's simply this. What does your heart look like? So in verse 8, then Jesse told his son, Abinadab to step forward, walk in front of Samuel, but Samuel said, no, nah, this isn't one of the Lord's chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shimea, but Samuel said, no, this isn't the one God's chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel, but Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen any of these. And then Samuel said, are these all the sons you've got? And Jesse said, well, they're still the youngest, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. It's so funny, the successor of the first king of Israel was out in the fields watching the flock by night. Y'all get that later. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We're not going to sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. David was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. I think they're describing me in the Bible. But, and the Lord says, this is the one. 
anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil that he had brought, anointed David with the oil. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. And then Samuel returned to Ramah. What's interesting that I think is overlooked in this passage so much. I hear preachers talk about the description of David. David was a good-looking guy. He had beautiful eyes. He was fit to be a king. He was anointed. But the passage before it, what Samuel was looking at that qualified the first son is exactly what David looked like. They were all good-looking kids. They all had beautiful eyes. They were all dark and handsome. They were all physically fit to be a king. But Jesse never thought of David because David may have looked the same, but his occupation was different. When he came, you know, you know, when you're a shepherd, you're someone that's dirty, you stink, you out and, and, and watching the sheep all day and all night because you don't want wolves to, to, to take away what's bringing your income in. David comes up, he looks exactly the same as the rest of them. But something qualified him to be anointed as king. And it wasn't his appearance. It wasn't even his job. It was one thing. His heart. He said, what's different about this one is that he seeks me. Because God doesn't just want to use people that say, yeah, I believe. He wants to use people to do incredible things, to turn kingdoms upside down and walk in victory with people who are actually seeking God with all of their heart. And continuing in the passage in verse 14, it says, The Spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and the Lord sent a tormenting spirit that filled him with depression and fear. And some of all Saul's servants said to him, A tormenting spirit from God is troubling you. Let us find a good musician to play the harp whenever the tormenting spirit troubles you. He will play soothing music and you will soon to be well again. All right, Saul said, find me someone who plays well. Bring him here. One servant said to Saul, well, uh, one of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem's a, a harp player. Not only that, but he's a brave warrior. He's a man of war. He's got good judgment. He's a fine-looking man. The Lord's with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse say, send me your son, David, the shepherd. And Jesse responded by sending David to Saul along with a young goat, a donkey load of bread, a wineskin full of wine. So David went to Saul, began serving him. Saul loved David very much, and David became his armor bearer. And Saul sent word to Jesse saying, please let David remain in my service. I'm very pleased with him. And whenever the tormenting spirit from God troubled Saul, David would play the harp, and Saul would feel better, and the tormenting spirit would go away. Now, we're going to spend a lot of times about David as a shepherd, and David as a musician, and David as a warrior, and David as a king, David as a priest. But what is so interesting in this passage, Saul was ready to take out anyone who was going to take his position. And the man that God sent to minister to the king was going to be the one that would walk in his very shoes. And David gained favor with the one that he was going to succeed as king because he was ministering to him. David was anointed by God to become king and his first step is serve the crooked king. Serve the wicked king. Serve in your, your music gifts and bless him so that when he's tormented, he'll feel peace. There are so many times in life that God wants to move you forward and the step is going to look like the most humbling, not making sense thing ever. You're going to be serving someone you don't like. You're going to be ministering to someone that's your enemy. You're going to be serving someone that does not really want the best interest of you. They're using you. And what we do with our minds is, well, they just using me, so I ain't going to serve them. Can I just tell you something that I've learned over my life? God develops you in secret places. Think about a baby. Where is a baby developed? 
in the mother's womb. You can't see inside what's being developed until it's ready to be birthed out. The best place for you to be to be developed is in a secret place of humility that you really don't want to be in. We wonder why it's time to rejoice God and give God praise in hard circumstances. Because in the hardest circumstances, in the most humbling positions, it's exactly the place God wants you. It's that waiting spot that God tried to get Saul to wait in. Saul said, wait and I'll deliver you. And when he appointed David, God didn't say, all right, David, time for you to be king. He had to serve under a king. He had to see what the king did. He had to see how the king acted. He had to see all the responsibility. He had to serve under the... the, I I, I heard a a preacher last week, and I think I mentioned it maybe sometime um, uh, to some people in here, but it's incredible, and some people disagree with him, but uh, the the preacher was Joel Osteen, and he talked about for for what right before his dad passed, Joel Osteen built the pulpit in a certain way that was perfect for his daddy. Joel never knew that one day he'd be standing behind that pulpit. But he was willing to serve the need of the house. David was anointed king and he was about to serve under this guy that if he would have just known, I don't know what he would have done. But he said, yeah, I'll serve. I'll do whatever you want, God. He was anointed to do a task that people would never do because he was seeking after God. He knew that that's where God wanted him at that time, at that place, at that season. Now I'm going to close with this. Has this been okay tonight? Okay. Saul disobeyed twice. And God said, I'm sorry I ever gave you anything, Saul. And it says your kingdom will never be established. So what does that mean for me if I have messed up royally? How many of you in this room have ever messed up and you're like, I don't, <laughs> yeah. Look, let's turn to Luke chapter 13 and let's read verses 6 through 9. Jesus told this story. A man planted a fig tree in his garden and came again and again to see if there was any fruit on it, but he was always disappointed. And finally, he said to his gardener, I've waited three years and there hasn't been a single fig. Cut it down. It's just taking up space in the garden. Make no mistake, God wants you to produce. God wants you to be fruitful. God doesn't want you to be someone who has to depend on everyone else all the time. There is a community of believers that you can do that with, but he wants you to produce something. So he says, you ain't producing? I'm cutting you down. You're you're a wasted space. So the gardener answered, sir, give it one more chance. Leave it another year. I'll give it special attention, plenty of fertilizer. If we get figs next year, fine. If not, you can cut it down. What this parable is about, when the Father looks at you, if he does not see you producing, he says, you're wasting my garden space. I got to cut you down because the Father's just. And what's just is if you're not doing anything for a kingdom, you're not needed. But then this gardener comes. This man called Jesus. He says, Father, just just give them one more chance. I will give them special attention. I'll go sacrifice myself. I will pay for everything they've ever done that makes you look at them as wasted space and I'll give them all the fertilizer they need to become the greatest people so that when you look at them you no longer see wasted trees that don't produce you see a beautiful array of what Psalm says says, is grass and flowers in a garden see what Jesus did for you You might not be producing right now. You may not be doing anything right now, but he says, I'm going to do everything I need to do to make sure that you're never cut away. There's a word for it. You know what it is? Grace. But don't abuse grace. Embrace it. 
Say, if I'm getting one more chance, I'm going to do everything I need to do. I'm no longer just going to claim to be a believer. I'm no longer just going to say, I, I love God. I am actually going to seek Him. And I'm not going to read it right now. I'll talk about it next week. But in the five verses prior to this parable, you know what Jesus teaches? Repentance. The first step into your second chance is a life of repentance. Not just, God, forgive me what I did, but I'm turning my back on everything that I've ever done. I'm turning my back on everything that life's thrown at me. I'm turning my back on my ways. I'm turning my back on my thoughts. And God, I'm seeking you. And when you start to seek him, he'll come at you. Just like he came at David and said, I'm, I'm not looking at what you're doing, David. I'm not looking at your skills. I'm not looking at your job. I'm not looking at anything. All I see is one great attribute. You have a heart after my own. And for that reason alone, I'm going to establish your kingdom. God wants to do incredible things in your life. He wants to change your families. He wants to, he wants to change the city. He wants to change this world through you. And it will start to happen when God starts to look at his church and says, you know what? Those people are seeking my heart. So if you're ready to take this journey with me and you want to become a seeker of God, not just a believer, but a seeker, someone who seeks God in the private, in, in the secret place, someone who seeks God in, in, in the places where no one knows you, if you want to become a person who is seeking God in every single facet of your life, can you just stand up and just give, give God the biggest praise you've given him all week long? Come on, just, just, just commit to him right now that you want to seek him with everything, not just believe, but seek. God, we thank you. We love you. We don't want to be just a people who claim that we believe in you, but we want to become a people who seek after you. God, I pray as we leave out of this place tonight that there is a stirring in the midst of everyone's heart mind, soul, spirit that there is a increase of a passion to just seek you to seek you on the way to work, to seek you in the way we react, we react to people, to seek you in our prayer time to seek you in personal worship and devotion to just seek you so that when the enemy comes against us, even though we might be pressed, even though we might be perplexed, even though we might feel like the enemy's out to get us we know that because we seek you, we have nothing to worry about. And we can stand our ground as sons and daughters of you. God, I love you. We love you. We praise you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said.